Well, good morning, and I trust that you're already in Romans. We're going to finish Romans chapter 4. I was talking with a few young men this morning, and I only have seven pages of notes, but I could easily make this into about six different messages. <laughs> so we'll see how fast I get through my seven pages of notes. Uh, I, there is so much uh, that we could go back to, and, and we will be referring back to this uh, probably uh, over and over again because it builds on itself as we look at uh, Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, and we look at some very um, uh, great blessings there. And so rather than trying to explain everything, uh, I'm going to come back to this as we get into some later chapters. Uh, otherwise, we'll never get done with Romans in the next 25 years. So I'm on pace uh, for, I think, about eight years. Uh, so uh, we're, we're speeding it up a little bit this morning. We're looking at biblical examples of justification by faith, and we're looking at the life of Abraham. We've seen a few, uh, a few things uh, that, that God has uh, been doing in this area. And what we saw last week, we've been building all through the end of chapter 2, chapter 3, and now in chapter 4, and that is that Abraham was justified through faith alone. Our justification, our salvation, is through faith alone. It's, it's been a real big issue. Um, through history, we've seen a divergence of this, and so a lot of the reformers back in the day realized that there was... It, that this system had been put in place by, Christ, uh, you know, by the Catholic Church, by the, the very early stages in the Catholic Church, that it was basically they started imp, uh, giving us works-based religion, that if you do all of these things, uh, you'll be saved. You have to do all these things, you have to go through a priest, you have to do all this stuff. And there was all this emphasis on ritualism, all these things on being following a law or a practice. And the reformer said, wait a minute, we've gotten away from Scripture. Scripture does not teach this. It's by faith alone. And we see this as Paul's argument. There are really three biggest enemies uh, to the gospel. And it, it doesn't mean that just because it's an enemy, let me clarify um, sometimes I don't do this, and it gets me in trouble later on down the road. Uh, when I say that there are three big enemies, it doesn't mean that these are things that destroy the gospel as far as that people won't get saved, because God saves who he wants to save. What this means is these are three great obstacles that lead to bad teaching, lead to heresy, and really can destroy the church from within. It did in the early church history. And these big enemies are what we've seen Paul fighting against in Rome and trying to help the church to understand their salvation. And that is human works, right, uh, religious works, and religious law. Everything is by God's law or following God's law. You're saved by law. You're, slave, you're saved through religious works or rituals. You have to do a bunch of different things and follow these rituals to be saved or by human works. It matters what you do. It depends on how good you are. And we see that Paul has been fighting that. 
We see this emphasis of being saved by faith. It's, it's by our response to God's work. And that's really important to understand. Many people believe that they are found right or that we are right with God by their work. We see it all the time. If I do a bunch of good things, then I'll feel good about myself. Or I feel good because I know that God is pleased because of all the things that I've done. And so it's all about good works. Many people believe, we see in society, they believe that they may be right or found good in God's eyes by their religion. And we see a lot of humanistic philosophy and humanistic religion today in our society. It's including their rituals. Many people believe that they are found right by keeping the Old Testament law. And, and we have a lot of religions, or we have a lot of, of people that say they're Christians that follow this pattern. Um, we call it replacement theology. They, they believe that, that the church or that they themselves have replaced Israel totally. And they've just they superimposed all of what they believe that Israel had to do by law through the through the first five books that Moses gave uh, in the Old Testament that came from God to Moses that he gave to Israel. And they say that we have to follow all of that because they've replaced Israel. So, and if you look, you'll find three of the major, major religions today that's sweeping across the world. They believe that they themselves are Israel. And that's a, that's a major thing. And and we see that even today in a lot of false teaching and false, uh, false, move, um, false movements that are out there. And what we realize as we look at our text this morning is that one cannot ever be right with God by religious laws or works, but only by relying on God's grace, which is found by faith in Christ. It's, it's that gracious work which God did when he died on the cross for our sins. That we either trust his work or you don't believe and you believe, trust in yourself, which leads to hell. So which work do we put our faith in? Only by faith in Christ will God declare one right. And that's what Paul has been arguing for, for a while so let's pray and ask God's blessing as we read our text in verses 13 through the end of the chapter. Now, there's a lot of tongue twisters, and so bear with me as I adjust uh, because I'm still fighting the glasses thing. <laughs> so I got to make an appointment for checking my eyes again. So I've gotten to that point in my life where it's, it seems like daily my prescriptions are changing. I know some of you are going, tisk tisk tisk. <laughs> All right, well, let's pray and then let's read. Lord, thank you for your text. Thank you for your words. Lord, your word never fails. Your word is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It really doesn't matter what I believe. Lord, it's a matter about what you say. So, Lord, may we learn and may it um, encourage our hearts. May it help us with some direct implication on how we live our life. And may it encourage us as we talk and share with many around us about your wonderful good news of salvation. So, Lord, teach us this morning through the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Verse 13, it says, For the promise of Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the righteousness of faith, or for if it is the adherents of the law who are to the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, whom gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, that is Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall our offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the word, the word it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There's a, there is a ton, a ton of information there. We've already seen this first uh, thing uh, last week about circumcision or uncircumcision, that through faith alone, God promises our promises are accredited. It was God's it was by faith that we are accredited or declared right in God's eyes, just as it was for Abraham. In Galatians 5, 6, it says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Or in Galatians 6, it says in verse 15, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, referring to that new creation that is in Christ what Christ and his work does to us. But now in verse 13 through 16, we see this new point. And that is through faith alone, God's promises are guaranteed. You know, it's interesting. The promise that Paul has in mind here in this verse is the same that he gave to the church in Galatia that we read already, and that the Messiah would come through the lineage of Abraham. Do you notice... It's interesting that all through all the years, Israel and the Jews believed that they were the promise rather than trusting in the promise of the one or the Messiah. They began to put their, their faith and their trust in the lineage 
that they were part of the lineage of Abraham rather than Abraham put his faith in the one that would come through him, that singular one, and that is Christ. And that was, all of this was rests upon grace. And that's the idea here. What Paul is saying here is that the fulfillment of the promised Messiah has never been by the law and, you know, by following the law. In fact, the process that brought righteousness to Abraham was faith, not the law. The law had nothing to do with the promise that God gave Abraham. It's interesting, and we read it in Galatians chapter 3, that there was nothing about Abraham's faith that, that had to do with the law. The law came later. 430 years to 500 years later, the law came. What came first was Abraham's faith in Christ. It's all about faith, faith alone. Had nothing to do. The promise of salvation and the promise of, of, the, of blessing the nations and the Messiah coming had nothing to do with following the law. The reason was because it, the law came 500 years later. The second reason is, is that Abraham was a sinner by his work. We looked at that last time. We looked at the life of Abraham. He, he doubted. He sinned. He did a lot of different things. But what was accredited to his count as righteousness or being declared right in God's eyes was his faith in the Messiah or in Christ, right? His work as a sinner had nothing to do with God's fulfilling his promise. The third reason is, is that the Bible says the opposite. Everywhere we go, it says it's by faith and not by law. Abraham was counted righteous by faith, Genesis 15, 6. Galatians 2, Galatians 3, Galatians 4, Galatians 5, Galatians 6. It's always, it's by faith. Abraham, or, uh, Paul is beating a dead horse and constantly reminding us it's about putting our right response to God's work. When we try to live by the law or we try to say that I got to do all these extra things, we're trusting that our work becomes better than the work that God that God established when he made the covenant with Abraham and when he died on the cross for our sins. What's really interesting, there's a conjunction in verse 14. It says, for this reason, or the, the conjunction for explains what happens if someone thinks that he can be declared right by God by keeping the law. Look at what it says happens when you believe that if you, you need to do all these good things in order to be right, in God's eyes. Result number one in verse 14 and 15, it says the whole faith system is made empty. The word empty there, or uh, it's actually talking about to no effect. There's no quality. It's not worth much. It's of no value. It's like the more, you know, the more money you print, eventually if you keep printing money, what happens? What happened, you know, when we did the ruble back in the day, people would stand in line with wheelbarrows of cash to go buy a loaf of bread, right? Um, it became better as a fire starter than it actually did to, you know, it didn't have any value. When you put your faith and trust in the law or in doing what you believe is right in order to get to heaven, uh, you're, there's no value in the work what Christ did. There's, it's null and void. The second 
reason, uh, the second result there is the promise that God made to save us and the promise that he made to Abraham becomes null and void in what he promised. Um, it's nullified, rendering it inoperative, invalid, abolished. God has God made and has made promises that are not conditioned on man keeping the law. It's interesting, going back to, if you remember the the illustration back found in, in Gen- starting in Genesis chapter 12 and going to Genesis 15, that when God made this promise to Abraham, he said, here's my promise, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to ratify it, I'm, I'm going to make this covenant with you. And when somebody made a covenant to make it, you know, to make that pact and to ratify it, to declare that this is the way it's going to be no matter what, It's not conditional on a contract. You would basically, you would slaughter an animal, you would divide it in half, and you would lay one half of the animal on one side and one half of the animal on the other, and the two that were making the pact or making the the covenant would walk through it, and they would walk through the blood together, and they would get both stained by the blood, and they were both held responsible to that covenant. But here's what God did. God said, here, we're going to ratify this covenant. And he said, so here's, this is my promise that through you, the Messiah would come and he would bless all the nations and salvation would come through that. And he said, now, and he said, and we're going to ratify it. I'm going to make this covenant with you. And he put Adam asleep, or I'm sorry, he put, he put uh, Abraham asleep. And Abraham, he put him asleep and God walked through the blood signifying exactly what he did when Christ died on the cross for our sin. Our salvation is not based on anything that we can do. It's solely based on the work of Christ. It relies, if one relies on keeping the law or upon his work, then the entire grace, faith, and faith and the, is just gone. The system is destroyed. Can the work of the law make a sinner righteous in God's sight? That's a great question. Can a person be right with God by keeping the law of God? Absolutely not. That's what he said. Not only in Romans uh, 3 and Romans 4, but in, in Galatians. We have five distinct statements about the purpose of the law. So, what's, so then what value is the law? What's the purpose of the law? If if the law has no, is not valued for our salvation, if keeping the law doesn't help us save us, then why did God give the law? It came 500 years later after Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteous. And what effect is the law? That's a great question. Well, if you go back to verse 19, we see a series of statements in, in Romans 3 and verse 19. We find five distinct statements starting in Romans 3 and moving forward. If you go, and it says in verse 19, it says, now we know that whoever, whoever the law says is, speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. The law was meant to close and to shut up people's mouths, to trying to make excuses for their life or to try to make 
arguments for the why they are the way they are and to make arguments with God. But the law really shuts the mouth. The second thing we see is look at the end of verse 19. Not only that every mouth may be stopped, but that the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by the work of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We see there in the beginning of, or the end of verse 19 that the law was given to establish guilt. It establishes guilt. Why is the law important? Because it shuts the mouth, it stops the arguing, and it helps to establish and realize that there is guilt involved. We don't meet God's standard. The third thing in verse 20 that we read is that the law was given to establish sin. It establishes that there is sin in our life, that our life is contrary to God. And it's God's established life of holiness, and so we can't meet that. And so because of that, it establishes that we are sinners. The fourth thing is found in verse 15 in our text. The fourth thing is that the law was given to reveal that we deserve wrath. The law shows that we deserve God's wrath. That's why in Romans chapter 1, it says that God's wrath is being poured out on the ungodly, on the unrighteous. Every one of us deserve God's wrath because of sin. That's what the law does. It shows that we deserve this wrath. These are all great points, by the way, when you speak to somebody about how great our salvation is, what Christ has really done. This magnifies the work of Christ. So that's one of the other things is, is not only was the law given to reveal that we deserve wrath, but in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 24, we read earlier in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 24, it says this, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was a guardian to bring us to Christ. The intent of the law was to show all of these things, to stop our arguing and trying to convince everybody that we're good, to establish our guilt, to show that we're sinners, to reveal that we deserve God's wrath, so that way we'd bring us to Christ, to show that we need Christ. And so that's really the, the great thing here, is that God's promises through faith alone are guaranteed. If you look at in Romans chapter 4, we've seen in verse 14 and 15, it says, For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why, verse 16, it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest, the foundation rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. The faith alone is, God's, is where God's promises are guaranteed. Apart from faith, there is no guarantee. The faith in Christ is our guarantee because of God's gracious work when he sent his son to die on the cross for our sin. Hebrews 6 is a beautiful rendition of that and the fact that we've been given so much grace and that all the promises of God are fulfilled and are guaranteed through faith alone. 
That brings us to the second point, and that is Abraham was justified through faith in God alone. It's faith alone in God alone through Christ alone. You kind of see this rendition. We tend to like to add to things. That's why it's all about faith, not faith plus something. It's only faith, and it's only through God. It's only by God's work. It's in God alone. And it's fact, in verse 17 through 18, we see that God was able to do because God can only do what we can't do. God does the impossible. Without God, we can't do anything. Faith in God alone is the key to facing the impossible. We can't have a relationship with God apart from God. We can't make a work up and bridge the gap between us and God. We can't be saved by work. There's a there's this Greek concept of hope. You notice in verse 18, there's that tongue twister of a statement that talks about, uh, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom we believed, who, uh, who gives life to the dead, and, which is a, a miracle, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. We need to understand the Greek understanding of hope is different than the Greek usage, or I'm sorry, of the English usage of hope. We might say, I hope it rains tomorrow if we're trying to grow plants. Um, but if you're Raul, you hope that, uh, that it'll be sunny tomorrow, right? <laughs> yeah, and living in the Northwest, we hope a lot and we get our hopes dashed a lot. Um, <laughs> Right, we expect we always are expressing a wish or a desire in something, but the Greek in the Greek here, the word hope is completely different. The Greek usage would be, I hope the sun comes up tomorrow, knowing farewell that we hope the sun, knowing and expecting that the sun will come up whether we see it or not. We know that it does because it's a little bit warmer than it was, you know, during the night. And, and we can actually see, even though it may be cloudy. The, the word in the Greek literally means to anticipate or to have a confident expectation. We have this confident expectation is what he's saying. The word hope is. So biblical hope is inseparable from faith in God. It does not depend on, um, you know, it doesn't depend on something else. Yeah, it's that temperament or prevailing circumstance. We're not hoping based on a circumstance or what's going to happen in our life. It's really a confident expectation. So what did it mean when Abraham said, I hope against hope? It means that he had divine hope or this, this expectation that he knew that was going to happen based on God and he had a divine hope in humanly hopeless situation. He knew that his situation in life, it was hopeless, but his trust was in God who you can have all hope in. So let's put it another way. On, um, I know one version, it read this, when it all seemed hopeless, he had hope. So the natural hope, right, confident expectation was that he would never have a son, 
But the supernatural hope, based on God's promise, was that he would have a son. So it was a supernatural hope in God that counteracted all natural hope in the fact that he was old and his wife was barren. So it was a supernatural hope against, uh, you know, a natural hope. He trusted in God. It's in God alone that our salvation comes. Abraham not only had hope in his, God's work, but that came because he put his faith and trust in God's word. Abraham didn't have a blind faith, but he had a believing faith based upon what God said. God said that he, he made a promise and he trusted it. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this very bluntly about Abraham's faith. He said it was based on the bare word of God. Abraham's faith was not just a blind faith. He believed in the impossible because it was just in the bare word of God. He took the simple truth of God's word and trusted it. God said this is the way it was. And he said, this is, so he said, okay. Even though he knew that this, it was an impossible task. Many times we know that's how we know it's true and it comes from God. Often what God does is impossible. Abraham had confidence. He had a confident expectation in God's word, not the circumstance. In verses 17 and 18, that's the whole point that his belief, his trust, he had this expectation in God, not in his circumstance. And that's a great question for us. Where is our confidence today? A lot can be said about how we live our life will show how or what our confidence is in. If we have confidence in what God says and I said this before, a lot of times we say, yeah, I believe God is great, and we sing how great God is, but then we fall apart during the week because we try to control everything, and when things fall apart and we can't control it, we are miserable. Why? Why? The question is, is did God's greatness change? No, it didn't. God is still great. The problem is, is we started to believe that our work was greater and we needed to control the things going on around us. Our circumstances does not change God's greatness. This is the other thing that we see in verse 19 through 20 is that faith in God alone is in God alone and the key to gaining spiritual strength. The kind of faith Abraham had was the kind of faith that believed God could make the impossible possible. In fact, Abraham grew strong in his faith in the midst of the unusual circumstances. You see what Paul was saying here in verse 19. He did not weaken, right, in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, nor unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. He never wavered in his faith, but instead grew in it as he gave glory 
to God. Do you see the importance here? That his faith grew, and it's because he gave glory to God. Faith in God alone is the key to glorifying God. One of the biggest problems that we see in the Christian life is the fact that we're, we don't grow stronger in our faith. We, we struggle. We struggle in our belief that what God said is true. And part of it is, is because we stop giving glory to God. We see that often. John Calvin talks about this, gain, this key to gaining spiritual strength is in God alone, in our faith in God alone. He said, let us also remember that we are all in the same condition as Abraham. Our circumstances are all in opposition to the promise of God. He promises us immortality, yet we are surrounded by mortality and corruption. He declares that he accounts us just or right, yet we are covered with sin. He testifies that he is um, merciful and benevolent towards us, yet outward signs threaten his wrath. What then are we to do? We must close our eyes, disregard ourselves and all the things connected with us so that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. That's why we see in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. To give God glory in Scripture means to render, render homage, to render glory, to render homage by word or deed to, the one, uh, to one of God's attributes, to His perfection. Giving God, glory to God means to ascribe to God what is due Him, is to worship Him. In fact, if we go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 21, this is, brings the downfall of everyone. It says, for though they knew God, they did not honor. Or it's the same word for glorify. It's doxa or doxa. It means to glorify God. They didn't honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. Faith in God alone, the key to gaining spirit, spiritual strength is our faith in God, to, that God is true and that what he says is true and faith in God alone is the key to glorifying God, to worshiping God. We struggle with that. When we start to believe in other things or trust in other things, our worship of God wanes. And as our worship of God wanes, so does our spiritual strength wanes. Our ability to trust God wanes. In verse 23 to 25, he really... We see here that he gives us basically a, a concluding statement of all the things that are true that we've studied through the last couple chapters. There's five crucial points, and that is basically righteousness being found right in God's eyes, a righteousness that saved is by God's uh, it's his judicial account to our life. When he looks at forensically at our life, he basically has declared us right by his actions. He's the one that declares us right, not our actions, his work alone. 
Righteousness in verse uh, 24, he says, is calculated by God to the one who believes that God will calculate one as righteous if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in ourselves, not in our work. The more we believe ourselves, the less we worship God and the less, you know, it just really goes downhill real fast. Our mind is corrupted. In verse 25, we see that Jesus has been delivered up. That was God's plan. That's not man's plan. It's God's promise, and it's been God's plan from the very beginning, from eternity past to eternity future. The end of verse 25, we see that Jesus was delivered up because of our sin, because we are not right and nothing we do is right. So we needed a righteousness that was not our own to be applied to our account, and that came through the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for our sins. The other thing was is that Jesus was raised to prove that God will do exactly what he said, that he calculates us as righteous only when we believe in Christ. We put our faith and trust in him. So what does all this mean? As we say that Christ, it's all by faith alone, in God alone, through Christ alone, and that God raised up Jesus, which proves his sacrifice for our sin was fully accepted. If Christ wasn't risen again, then it wouldn't have been an acceptable sacrifice. No bull, no sheep, nothing in history that was sacrificed to declare people right ever rose again. Right? But Christ did to prove that God's Perfect sacrifice in Christ was for our sin, was fully accepted, so that way it would be accredited to our account. God was publicly demonstrating through Christ that there is only one person who can give us justification, and that is Christ. We cannot earn this. We, are certain, we certainly do not deserve this. We can't earn it, and we don't deserve it. Everything in our life is built upon that grace. Are you struggling in your walk with God? And you're saying, man, I'm, I'm struggling. We were talking about that a little bit this morning as we talked about being united with Christ when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, yet I live. When we put our faith and trust in Christ, we've been crucified with him, but yet we're still alive because Christ is alive because of his perfect sacrifice. The thing is, is have you gone astray? Have you began to look elsewhere in your life? Have you begun to fix your eyes on something else, on your circumstances in life? A lot of times our heart gets fixated on a desire or on a circumstance. We want something really bad and, and it takes a hold of our heart. And we learn that right here that everything is based on our trust in God. In, by faith alone, in God alone, through Christ alone. Do you trust that God sees everything? That's what Abraham was doing when he hoped against hope. When he was, when he was basically hoping and trusting in God's word and what God said by promise... He, do you trust in what God sees in, throughout history and throughout eternity? Or are you still trying to see everything for yourself in life? 
When we try to see everything in life for ourselves, we try to make everything fit into our understanding. We start coming up with all sorts of philosophy, all sorts of religious programs. We start doing a lot of different things in our life. And it takes away from what God did. And we struggle to walk with the Lord. Is your hope based on, circum- on circumstances in your life? Is it a, just, I hope so? A wish based on a desire? Or are you focused? Is it focused? Are you targeting your hope on something that is sure? Just like it, it says in the text. Is, is it focused on Christ? Is it focused on God's word? Is your target expecting what God says he will do, he is going to do? When he says that he's returning soon, do you believe it? Or is your soon just in the moment? Or is it soon compared to all eternity? Are you looking forward to Christ's return? Or are you just looking for making life easier? Where's your hope? Is it a wish? And and sadly, a lot of people go to church because they just wish their life was better. That doesn't save you. But faith in God's work, in God's promise that comes through Christ, that what he says is true. Is that where your faith and hope is this morning? One of the easiest ways to stop enjoying life is to have a false hope, to have a false desire. God is everything. When you start to desire other things than the Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Our life becomes dependent on circumstances, people around us, relationships, our own work, and it becomes miserable. There is no joy in that. But in our faith in great God comes great joy and great peace from a great God. Because He is great. He is glorious. Our heart is not settled on a wish and a whim and a desire, but on the very foundations of the universe based on God's grace and mercy towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's dependent on his greatness, his holiness, his righteousness. All of our deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight, but when we put our trust in him, it's his righteousness that's been accredited to our account, so our life then can access that righteousness And the joy and the peace come through his righteousness applied to our life, not based on how good we are. We're not good. But the greatness and the key is God is. Where's your hope this morning? Lord, thank you so much for this teaching that shows that there are so many direct implications about how we live our life. Lord, it's, there's direct implications to salvation, to the gospel, and realizing that it's by faith alone that we are responding solely based on your work. Lord, I pray this morning that if there's anybody here that's been 
focusing solely on themselves and their work and their wishes, their desires, and they're trying to do everything that they gain and fight for that, and life has been miserable and hard, that they would stop and look to how great you are, that from eternity past, that you have put everything together, that we might just trust you and that you would do the work that we can never do. Lord, I pray that that is where that they would turn to you, stop looking at the world and, and themselves and turn to you and look at what you did for us, that you paid for our sins, that you might rise again and apply your righteousness to our life, to save us, to declare us right based on your work. May we stop trying to bridge the gap And Lord, may we just simply turn and trust you. Lord, if we're struggling as a, maybe we've put our faith and trust in you and the things of this world has caused our faith to grow dim. But Lord, that we just simply turn back to you and look at you, gaze upon you to find and behold how wondrous you truly are. And then then the things of this world will grow strangely dim in light of the gospel and the truth of your word, may we trust you today and walk worthy of that calling, to walk worthy of how you saved us, fully trusting you step by step each day in our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.